Hi, and welcome to the April edition of Cinetopia, Edinburgh's favourite cinema podcast. We will be taking another trip down the alleyways and byways of film and film exhibition in Edinburgh for this month. And in April, there's a lot going on this month. We've got a slightly Mediterranean feel to this month's programme. We'll be reviewing Loro and Happy as Lazaro, which are currently out in cinemas across the city. We're also going to be comparing our favourite Italian film because there's a new event opening uh, next month, the Cinema on the Shore, which will be featuring Italian cinema, uh, pizza and uh, lots of drinks. <laughs> I think April's, April sits or whatever it is. Yeah, some kind of cocktail. Um, we'll also be interviewing Mara Felisa, the director of Iberodox, which is currently midway through its run. And we'll be discussing the Cinetopia networking event on Wednesday the 24th. And we'll also be in, uh, reviewing Vox Lux, as well as discussing some of the other events happening this month. Uh, so I'm in the studio is myself, Paul Bruce, and along with me I have Jim Ross, the editor of Take One magazine, and Annie Askinonen. So guys, what's your month in film been like? So looking at uh, Ibero Docs for me quite a bit, we'll be talking about that later on, of course, uh, talking to Mar Felites, the the founder and the director, as you've said. Uh, and then quite a lot of films, really, uh, some of which we're going to talk about. So some interest, and then basically just giving people options beyond Avengers Endgame, which of course is the big, you know, giant elephant in the room here. But there is other stuff going on. There are other films to see, and we're going to talk about some of them. Great stuff. And Annie, what have you been doing? Well, I've been busy planning the event we're having on May 10th called Cine- Cinema on the Shore. There's a lot of little moving parts that need to be moving at the right pace. Um, other than that, I actually made it to the cinema as well, oh. which is rare. Very good. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm glad somebody did. So the first film that we're going to review uh, this month is Loro. Annie, what did you make of it? Right. So Loro, to tell you a bit about it, is a new film by Paolo Sorrentino, um, known best perhaps right now from the HBO series The Young Pope. And also the newer season, The New Pope, that's been on my Twitter feed because there was some topless pictures <laughs> of Jude Law <laughs> resurfacing. Uh, I don't know why. He's rather old. But for some reason, people be, seem to be having like infatuation with these religious leader characters. Have you watched Fleabag? With Andrew Scott getting all the attention. I haven't got up to that section of it, but I, I'm, I'm well aware of the hot priest <laughs> yeah. phenomenon. There yes. we go. <laughs> anyway, so Lauro is a fictional biopic of Sylvia Berlusconi that covers about the years between 2006 and 2009. Uh, Berlusconi is, of course, played by uh, Paolo Sorrentino's favourite actor, Tony Servillo. Servillo? Servillo? I pronounce it like she's Sevilla, in Spanish. Double L, yeah, yeah. <laughs> known for example from uh, Sorrentino's previous film, and my personal favorite that I'll be talking about a bit more about later, uh, La Grande Bellezza, The Great Beauty. Um, now in Italy, which I found interesting, Laura is actually two films, so it's Laura One and Laura Two. In UK market, we have a cut version, which is about three hours long or something similar to that, but two and two and a half, something like that. But um. The actual original piece is, I think, four hours. So there's about an hour missing on the version that we have. Um, It still retains that kind of two-part story structure, although from what I've read, um, it's slightly different. Like It's it's organized differently in the original film. So things that are happening like towards the end of the film in the UK cut are actually like already on the first film and stuff like that. Um, And it doesn't, it's not 
divided in act is kind of naturally flows into the first part to the second one. Um, the first part, uh, we are introduced to Sergio, who is a businessman and a questionable talent scout. He's effectively managing a, a group of escorts whom he is using to bribe local politicians and decision makers. And uh, he has this growing hunger for power and he, he gets like a revelation that the person he needs to befriend is Silvio Berlusconi, who is at the time the Italian prime minister. And he is, of course, notoriously known for his corruption and for the sleazy antics he has towards young women. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> now, the second part of the film then focuses, or I would even say like the two thirds of the film for focuses on Berlusconi's story, which is built around his failing marriage and also his disgust in being in the opposition in the local you know, Italian politics. So he's trying to get back into power and also to win back the estranged wife's heart. And the character I found was a bit more sympathetic than I would have imagined of a satire of, of Berlusconi. I think it's part with the, the actor being quite lovable. <laughs> uh, but it's it's still very funny. It's still making fun of him. But it does make him a bit more human character than I would imagine if this would be made of, of Trump or something like that. I, I, I think I agree with that. The the way it characterizes um, Berlusconi... I'll, I'll, I'll speak about the Berlusconi character first just because you've you've mentioned it there i think it's interesting the way it characterizes berlusconi um i I think you're right in the sense that there is a hint of sympathy there but i think it's actually i I think it's been quite clever about it in that you know berlusconi is seen as this kind of like larger than life character in Mm. the media you know these ridiculous antics and you know you couldn't make it up type stuff going on in and around his life but i think what's very clever and quite um skewering about this film is he's really made out to be underneath it all a pathetic old man um and there's quite a lot of scenes and utterances by other characters that speak to that and i think that's mm. what the uh, the fictional you know because obviously it's very heavily fictionalized even if it mm. is taking bits from uh reality and i think that's something it did with berlusconi which is really really interesting um the script kind of captures this um way with words the man has because you know Mm. love him or loathe him the man knows how to tell a joke it might be a horrendously offensive racist joke but he's got an understanding of comic timing yeah and it kind of captures that (laughs) yeah yeah right um so i think what it does with his character is very interesting and overall i really like the film um A lot of visual metaphor woven in there, which I think you'd probably expect out of uh, Sorrentino. I think anybody who's seen Paolo Sorrentino's work will kind of recognise this, you know, very much as a, a film that comes from him. The the only criticism I do have with it is a little bit the structure. Um, mm. I didn't feel it flowed from one part to the other, so it flows from this uh, sort of this basically small time petty, you know white collar crook basically yeah (laughs) um very quickly it then shifts gear and goes to to berlusconi and to me it felt a little bit jarring and i think Mm. that might be a function of the fact that originally as you said in italy it was released as two parts Uh, it feels like there's a bit missing there it gets past it because as you pointed out it happens quite early on and then Mm. we begin to focus on uh the berlusconi character directly so i think it gets past it but it is a little bit of a an adjustment uh at the start um i was wondering what you thought about in terms of how it 
painted that character? Because also we've spoken about the structure. I've said a little bit there, but what did you feel it was trying to maybe say about Berlusconi? So, like I said, it's it portrays like a softer version of him that I would expect, but it's also made into this like a caricature. So with all the makeup and all the smiling he does, that is very, you know, very much of him. It's obviously there to make us laugh and ridicule him. Um, but it is also, I think, like you said as well, it, it's acknowledging that he's not a stupid man. Like he's, he's cunning and he definitely knows how to call people. Um, so it's acknowledging those traits that actually got him into power. But what I found interesting is he's it's he's been kind of projected against a younger generation. Um, and the young people in the film are, I think, continuously kind of rejecting him and rejecting, kind of noticing what he does and then just not falling for his tricks. And that's something that's saying a lot about the Italian situation at the moment and the situation in the world that it is, that young people are just understanding the world a bit differently than the older crowd. And for example, with like all this economic stuff and the climate change and things like that, it's actually like the younger generation that's taken steps forward into into making change. And I think that's what Sorrentino is also trying to say or saying in the film is that there's this middle... um, age group that's still kind of sucking up to him but that's not going to take you anywhere uh, you have to kind of wake up and see what what he's doing yeah i i would agree with that i think you've got absolutely bang on there um because there's a very interesting contrast. there's kind of three generations in the film right you've got the old man berlusconi and a lot of his cronies you've got um Sergio, the character who's kind of like trying to get into berlusconi's circle and he's, mm. you know he's not an old man but he's certainly of a you know slightly older generation than this kind of large cabal of young women who he basically kind of ropes into like coming to this Sardinian mansion to yeah. try and kind of capture Berlusconi's attention. Yeah, and the, uh, what I found interesting, sorry to interrupt you, but like they are, um, there's a scene where they're sniffing cocaine and then someone says that's like the old school drug, like nobody uses that anymore. And then Sergio says like, well, you know, these women love the old school stuff and those are the women that go for Berlusconi as well. Yeah, and it, it's... I found just that contrast between the generations, I think, worked very well. And this is where a lot of these like really weird visual metaphors come in. Like, so this isn't a spoiler because it's literally the opening scene of the film. But like, the film opens in a very strange way, right? It opens at what we then become aware of the fact that it's Berlusconi's Sardinian mansion. Yeah. And basically, what happens is this: the sheep wanders in, and like the air conditioning keeps going down, and it's watching, you know, some rubbish game show from one of Berlusconi's TV channels that he owns, and it basically starts shivering, and then the thing collapses dead. It is the most bizarre opening, but it actually makes more sense when you get into it. Like, I kind of took it not to get kind of like you know maybe too sued corner about this for those who have read Private Eye, but it kind of felt like a metaphor for the Italian people and yeah. the, the 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 way that um, the sort of environment that Berlusconi creates. Yeah. And then you've got Sergio, this kind of middle generation who basically have been living with this corrupted leadership, this corrupted system, and you can see the effect it's had on them, whereas the youngsters who are rejecting him as this pathetic old man Mm. um obviously then start to show him up for 
what he is, mm. uh, or or at least they managed to break down the artifice that he has created, which has intoxicated uh, a certain generation, and why he got into power in the first place. And I think the the way he's done that with visual metaphors, the script, the characters, I think it's all really well. I think it's all really well done. It's really well worth seeing for primarily for that. Really beyond even the the script, because. You know Tony Servillo as um, Berlusconi. He gets quite a lot of good lines as well, which mm. are, are not things that Berlusconi has said, but you can totally imagine him saying them. Yeah. Uh, it's really captured the essence of him and what appeals about him, whilst at the same time really breaking him down and tearing him apart. Mm. And I think it, it does that superbly. One thing I'm quite interested in here is: is this? So I haven't seen the film, but I'm just wondering: is there a possible defamatory element to this? I mean, are they careful to not name him as Berlusconi, for example, or? Are they presenting it as his real life, or is it a, a kind of dramatization of his real life, or a com- an out-and-out comedy? So it, I'm pretty. So he is referred to by name, um, and there's no doubt that it would be because you know because there's scenes where he brings in talks to footballers who are meant to be signing for AC Milan and things like that. So there's no doubt about it. They've tried to cover themselves very well for that because there is a monster disclaimer at the start of the film, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an absolutely monster before it goes into the 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 opening sheep scene that we we've discussed. You know about how you know the classic. You know this is, these are fictional people. They're based. You know any similarities to real life characters is coincidental. But I, if you when you go to see the film, you'll see that the style they stylize that text in a way that kind of pokes fun at that idea because everybody knows it's about Berlusconi. Um, so they're probably legally covered, but I can't imagine Silvio is going to be very pleased with this film. <laughs> Let's put it that way. So, Laurel, if you want to see it, it's currently in running in Filmhouse. Um, if you like any other Sorrentino stuff, you'll definitely like this one, so it's well worth a watch. So now we're going to review Happy as Lazaro. So, Jim and Annie, let's hear what you think about it. So, I was happy enough to catch it when it was on Filmhouse. Right now, it's available on Curzon On Demand. Um, so, give it a look if, if you have Curzon. You can also see Laura there, but, you know, my note, go see it in the cinema. It's a really, really beautiful film. Although, there's a bit too much ass in titties. Anyway, that might be a selling point. Um, so, Happy as Lazaro is this, I'd say, fantastic film. It's not <laughs> my favorite one, but it's fantastical. So it's a magical realism film about. Um, it starts in a rural um, town. That's actually the people in there are working as sharecroppers for uh, for Marquisa, who has failed to tell them that sharecropping has been illegal since the nineteen eighties. Um, but since the the village is very much secluded from the rest of the world. Things like this can happen. I think it's actually based on on a, a real story, a newspaper art- article as well. Um, it's centered around this character called Lazaro, who is this pure young man who wants nothing bad to anyone else. Um, and it's kind of his uh, story. But in middle of the film, the villagers find out that what they're actually doing is is not okay, and police moves them onto the city in Italy. And this kind of discusses these issues of of uh, abuse, and it, I think it touches on issues of refugees as well and things like that, like who is the class differences and who is doing what, and everybody seems to be exploiting everyone except for this one character, Lazaro. So yeah, I I haven't seen this film much to my frustration because um, basically I uh, heard first about it at the Cambridge Film Festival towards the end of last year. 
and has been bouncing around the festival circuit uh, a little bit. I think I might have mentioned it on the show we did before the Glasgow Film Festival, and I am yet to come across anybody who does not like this film. Um, so I think it's definitely worth checking out. I suppose one thing I'd be interested to to know is how the the filmmaking style uh, blends with the, the actual story. Because as I understand, mm. it's shot on Super 16. Super 16, yeah. It is, yeah, and you notice that very early on. They don't, they don't hide that. There's a bit of grain and like scratches and stuff like that, and a bit of hairs on screen. Um, but it, because the, the moment you start watching, you're thinking you're watching. If, especially if you don't listen to my, <laughs> my, me talking about it or or watch any trailers, um, it looks like you're watching a film that tells a story from the early 1900s or something like that. Um, so it does play into the aesthetics, and then when you go onto the cityscape. I think just adds to it as well. It's just like, all right, it's it it is trying to say it, it introduces a, a different sort of level of of interpretation. I really liked this. It was a uh, it, it's not like sharp and, and neat as as all the new films are nowadays, but it really really fit the storyline and what it was trying to say. Yeah, it sounds like it's worth checking out. Like you're not the first person to mention me this idea of it balancing, um, you know, some of these topical elements with that kind of magical realism you you mm. spoke about. So it's uh, it's sadly not in cinemas anymore. No, but it's, it's available online, and you know, it's it's not that bad. Watch films online either, you know. <laughs> uh, although we always want to tell people to go go in the cinemas, but much like me, some people just don't have the time to do that. Or the ability to to have a, an art house cinema right next to them, so it's 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 still a good good way to watch films. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a magical film, um, and go into it with open mind because the ending might confuse you. It's not like a very straightforward film, um, but that's just what makes it a bit better. Yeah, well, I, I would say people should definitely check it out. I will be. Uh, I will finally, finally get round <laughs> to it. It's been a hit at a lot of festivals. And it certainly sounds like one of these films that's that well regarded. It may well pop up at cinema again quite soon, but it's on It's on Curzon as we broadcast, so yeah. go check out. And also, Curzon, if you're listening, we are uh, ready to take a sponsorship deal. <laughs> So I'm here with uh, Mar Felices, the co-founder and director of the Iberodocs Film Festival in Edinburgh. Uh, welcome to the show, Mar. Thank you. So we're going to talk a little bit about the festival, which is going on in Edinburgh at the moment and has some events in Glasgow later uh, next month. So just to start off with, um, tell us a little bit more about the festival's history and why you co-founded it. Okay. So when I first arrived in Edinburgh in 2012, uh, my focus was on my own documentary project about my grandfather. And I was looking for people involved in the world of, on the world of documentaries. And I became aware that although there was a rich and vibrant calendar of cultural events in Edinburgh, there was a gap in terms of both documentaries and Hispanic culture. Uh, one of the people that I met was uh, Mon, José Ramón Rivas who was working at the International Film Festival where we met and we joined forces and shape Iberodox together. Him taking care of the logistic part of the festival and me taking care of the artistic side. Great, great. And one thing I wanted to ask you about was the uh, the film festival scene in Edinburgh. Um, it's very crowded. <laughs> There's a lot of film festivals. And what I was wondering, because I've asked this of other uh, festival directors, 
Does that make it easier because there's an energized audience that is very familiar with events like it? Or do you find it harder because you're then competing for attention in a kind of a crowded marketplace? Yeah, that's a good question. I think in terms of logistics, it can make a scheduling trickier in terms of venue booking or finding the right date for our events. However, having a lot of different organizations offering interesting programs, it is also very inspiring. And uh, on the other hand, I think it's fantastic to have such an engaging and interesting audience with their mind open. I believe they appreciate that we are bringing many premiers to Scotland. In fact, this crowded thing encourages us to be more uh, innovative. Yeah, and I can I can certainly tell that from the schedules. A lot of very good events on there beyond films. Even I did like there was a, I was speaking at your launch to somebody who's running a dance workshop. Uh, which I have two left feet, so I don't think it's really for me, but mm-hmm. it's, it's great that you're doing those additional sort of events. O- on the topic of um, kind of getting into the, the scene and working with other people and having that energised audience, you've actually worked with several other film festivals to put events on this year. I've seen uh, there's Take One Action, there's Document Film Festival, uh, and you're doing screenings with them at the CCA in Glasgow. So uh, how did that come about? What was the, the reasoning behind that? Yeah, well, I remember the very first year with the screening of Kachkaniragmi. Many people were making their journey from Glasgow to Edinburgh, specifically to attend this film. And we found out because in the feedback forms that we shared with the audience, it was this request to do the festival in Glasgow. So we take our well, our audience uh, seriously and their feedback. So this is why we are also running uh, events at CCA. And in terms of collaborations with other film festivals, well, I think why to compete when you can collaborate, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, so you say, so there are many festivals that I really admire, like Take One Action or Document in Glasgow, so I think we are very lucky that we are collaborating with them this year. Uh, and also with great institutions like Edinburgh College of Arts, Scottish Documentary Institute, that they were supporting us from the very beginning. Yeah, so I think these collaborations have allowed us to reach a wider range of people. And at the beginning, 70% of our audience were Spanish. However, thanks to a network of mutual support with local organization, we can see from our feedback forms that now over 70% of our audience are local. Yeah, that, that evolution of the audience is very interesting. Actually, if anything, it probably speaks to the idea that you have this energized audience that is engaging and it's it's six years the festivals this is the sixth year yeah yeah Yeah, so you can see that that evolution over time that now obviously the the festival is called ibero docs the focus is documentary um but you've actually got a short film program in partnership with edinburgh short film festival this year um so according you know paul who's hosting the show is very you know will be very familiar with that program um and obviously some of those films um blend fictional narrative elements or some narrative shorts uh, and some of the films themselves that they're screening as part of the program kind of maybe go beyond what somebody would uh, call classical documentary so what i was wondering was what do you try and look for in the films on the program that do that that go beyond that what is it you look for as the festival director mm-hmm. Well, I am a specialized in creative documentary filmmaking, so I find very interesting blending different formats. And we have always included hybrids into our program, but yes, this year we have pushed the boundaries a bit more. Uh, this year makes the first time that we have ever screened a purely fictional piece with Yuli. 
which was screened at Rose Theater and was followed by a wonderful Q&A with Tamara from Take One Action and Paul Laverty. Uh, and there were many reasons behind. Uh, one of them is the director, Isiar Boyain, likes to work with non-actors, and the fact that the narrative is a biographical story of Carlos Acosta's journey made it important to include in our program as a special event. In relation to the Edinburgh Short Film Festival program that we together, out of the eight films that we are showing, only three are purely fictional. And taking feedback from um, our Dog and Wine, the fundraising event that we do at Christmas, we discovered that the audience enjoy a mixture of documentary and fiction. And being Iberodox, a cultural platform, uh, we embrace all kinds of art forms, from dance to music to photography, and our audience tell us that this makes their experience of the films richer and offers more of an insight into the cultures that we focus on. And um, on the topic of, you know, cultural platform, like obviously you, you've got this overarching theme for the festival. Um, and I was wondering how you came to this, uh, this year's festival theme. Uh, one of the films that I saw recently ahead of its screening uh, was The Keys to Memory, which is directed by Jesus Armesto. And it fits very beautifully within that theme. And the other films on the programme do as well. So for me, it's kind of a chicken and egg scenario. I was wondering what came first. Was it the the films and what's on the programme or the theme? And then you'd selected the films. Just I'm interested in how that came about. Yeah. Well, for me, intuition comes first. I'm constantly watching trailers and requesting films to watch, but also directors approach us offering their films to be considered, like... Uh, the Keys to Memory of Professor Sarmesto. Then I start selecting films and finding connections between them, so the program starts taking shape. Uh, regarding the themes, we always explore topics related to the immigrant journey and represent a step towards starting a new life in a different culture. Previous themes were integration, boundaries, empowerment. This year we have chosen memory and identity as we found that uh, a common theme that ran through our selection uh, was the process of reevaluating identity through memory or there is no identity without memory. So obviously the festival uh, started earlier uh, this month in April. It keeps going until uh, quite late May in Glasgow, in fact, because with the events that we've spoken about at the, the CCA. How, how has it gone so far? How are you finding audiences are engaging with the, the films? Well, um, I think we had quite positive feedback from from audience so far. Uh, the first week was the hardest one because it was a week of first times. Uh, we had uh, we have our first uh, gig at Rose Theater with Kiko Veneno, over two hundred fifty people coming, and there were obviously challenges, uh, but uh, I think we have overcome them and we learn from them. Uh, it was also the first time that um, that we were screening movies at the Rose Theatre and being a theatre and not a cinema. Obvious, obviously, there were some technical parts that, that could be improved, uh, but we will take this in consideration for next time. But in general, the feeling from the audience was really good. Uh, the artists, uh, Kiko Veneno, Rafael Sar from Jurimata, uh, Julia Drummond, uh, an artist that came from Brazil to play as well with us. Uh, they, they left really happy and they are looking forward to come back again. So I think I give that just to see people that I really admire 
thanking the festival and the organization and the audience, uh, the experience that we had. I think this is uh, the feeling that I would like to keep. Yeah, it's great. I, 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 I'm really gutted I couldn't make it along to that. Was that, is, was that after the, uh, the film uh, Cameron Flamenco y Revolución? Yeah, one. yeah, well, no, it's certainly was... one of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it looked it looked really very interesting. The other thing I want to ask you about is because obviously um, some festivals play around a little with their their schedules because the, the 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 typical format which a lot still go for is you know over a week or ten days, eight days or something. You know, it gets flown through loads of events. Uh, some festivals have mixed that up a bit, and I've noticed uh, Ibero Docks is one of them. Uh, you've got events kind of mainly on weekends, some midweek, but it's kind of spread out. Um, what drove that decision? Because again, I've, I've asked other festival directors about, and they all have their own reasons. So, what? Why have you chosen to go that route? Yeah. Well, last year we ran twenty-one events in four days. So why? That makes first the team to be exhausted. Uh, also, you don't have time to spend with the directors. The directors are also running around because they also want to watch the films of other directors and then they're taking part in debates, in panel discussions, and they also want to know the city. And one of our sponsors, Viajar por Escocia, they offer them tours around the city and they don't have time to do them. <laughs> and then also the audience, well, we have the feedback that there are many that they want to go to many different events, but obviously they don't have the time or the budget to go to so many in, in just four days. So we wanted to to do like a, a stress-free festival. <laughs> I, I can get behind that idea. <laughs> I can very much get behind that idea. Um, that's great. That's great. So thinking about what is uh, still to come in the festival. Um, so obviously we are broadcasting on the, the 23rd. So there's still quite a lot to come from the festival beyond that. What are some of the, now obviously you're going to be a bit biased, but <laughs> what would you say are the highlights to come in the festival? Because you've got guests, you've got more films. Yeah. What would yeah. you uh, pick out to let people know about? Well, especially the 4th and the 5th of May, because we have Jesus Armesto coming and say we're doing this screening in collaboration with Take One Action Film Festival and say also Scottish Documentary Institute. And then the 5th of May, we're doing the collaboration with, with uh, Paul and with Edinburgh Shore Film Festival. And this selection is really good. Uh, it's going to be over two hours of short films. Uh, we have uh, three filmmakers coming for the Q&A. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be very good, this one. Uh, I mean, it's for me, it's very difficult to choose. Uh, but also, there is a screening of Solar Lands. Um, it's a movie about uh, the travel of uh, the poet Ruben Darío to Andalusia. Uh, this is really good. And we have also the president and the director of the Andalusian uh, Audiovisual Foundation coming. Uh, that's the 25th of April. And then also 23 shots from uh, Jorge Laplace that he is going to join us as well. And he's doing a he's doing a, a master a class master as well. Yeah, this documentary institute, and he's brilliant. I mean, every time that he goes on radio, he goes like completely viral. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's gonna be a very nice experience. So yeah, no, it sounds like a good range of events, and I, I I've seen some of the uh, the films in the short film festival. Uh, sorry, the short film program. 
uh, particular. I think there, there's one animation uh, which is Colombian, I think, if mm. I remember correctly, and it's really quite something. Uh, I, I saw it before, and it's, it, it takes a while to get out of your head. It's really quite vibrant and, and bizarre. It'd be a wonderful thing to, to see. So I think people should definitely check that out and the, uh, the other events that are going to be going on. Yeah. So obviously you've got a lot of great events. Uh, people are going to want to know more about them, where they can get tickets, where they're happening. Uh, presumably they can go to the Iberodox website for yeah, that. Yeah, iberodox.org. Okay. On our it. social media channels, we have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Great, great. And obviously on the Cinetopia accounts, we'll you know let people know about the events that are going on and what to do about that so uh thank you for coming mar uh, it's been great talking much. to you i hope the rest of the festival goes extremely well uh the program looks great i'm sure people are going to love it thank you very much so following that we're going to review the film vox lux which is currently in cinemas around the city not quite just yet. Not quite. Yet. Okay. Not quite. Um, it's, it, we'd expect it to come out on the 3rd of May, and also mm -hmm. it, it's another one which will be available on Curzon On Demand. Um, so it's directed by Brady Corbett, uh, who people would probably recognise from uh, a couple of Michael Haneke and Lars von Trier films. Mm -hmm. Another actor turned director, which we spoke about in the last show. Um, so he's got one feature film before, uh, Childhood of a Leader, and this is his new one, which is based upon nothing it seems to be an original story and it follows a basically a young pop star um so we open with a a, a tragic event let's say i don't want to necessarily spoil precisely what it is but off the back of this this uh, young woman celeste is kind of catapulted to national fame um so she finds herself in the world of uh, music production and becoming a sort of a child pop star at quite a young age it then basically focuses on the latter section of her life. Um, and by latter, I mean just that it is later. She's still in her uh, early 30s at this point, at which point she's played by Natalie Portman. And basically, it's just kind of looking at the effect of the, uh, the opening tragedy on her and how it's affected her life. And basically following her interactions with her family um so right from the start she's very close with her sister and she is a character throughout as well her manager she gets off the back of starting that career which is played by jude law and then there's also uh, her daughter in the second part of the film so it's basically it's split into these two acts so it calls genesis and regenesis and that basically has is the framing device for that particular particular story and in my in my view, uh, it works quite well. Um, it doesn't quite come together for me. There's a lot to unpack in this film, and there's a lot of things that I think you could read into it. And for me, it didn't necessarily fall upon one, but just to kind of get the discussion going on that, I suppose uh, I'd be interested in what Annie thought of uh, that and what you took from the film. Because obviously there's a lot going on, but what kind of stood out to you? It's funny that you should ask because I have a list here. So I made um, a few notes while I was watching the film. Let's start from the very beginning. Hate the credits at the beginning, it says. Also, <laughs> consequently, hate the credits in the end. So it does this weird thing where it runs the credits backwards or they go like from... Yeah, they go from uh, bottom to bottom top. Bottom to top. Why? And also, it's it has the credits in the beginning 
which is then it, like it already starts and then the, the whole actually my second point being act, act structure is shit everywhere <laughs> um so it does this artificial kind of it, it already tells us like oh this is going to be something different you know we're not going to do things like everyone else does and fine act structure all right but when you call it genesis or regenesis like you lo- you lose me at that point it's, it's this is a sorry um in everywhere there's not just this film but when you do something like that it's, it's feels a bit stupid so you'd recommend people structure their films that way <laughs> yeah, just let it flow you know naturally <laughs> anyway third part um third point i don't like the songs so i know in the beginning when um, she's in her early parts of her career um of course the songs are not great they're like heavily auto-tuned um and they're intentionally crappy but then also I was like, okay, it's going to get better than this. No, it doesn't. So in the end, even when there's this massive concert scenes where the film ends, um, the songs are still really bad. Um, <laughs> then on more points that I have, unless you want to say something in, in between, uh, the kid actor doubling is a weird choice. So this, again, is a bit of a spoiler, but the same actor who plays her as a as the young girl who's getting into the the music industry is also playing then Celeste's daughter. And okay, uh, a nice gimmick, but the character is exactly the same. There's not enough change, I feel, for it to be reasonable it's just a, it's just the same character over and over again i i would argue so a lot of the points you've made there i i totally agree with um i have more so yeah I, I i don't doubt as we said there's a lot to unpack here i think to to pick up on a couple that you you mentioned there the, the credits thing i think is an interesting one right because basically oh. it has a pretty cold open effectively into this event and then as we're looking at the aftermath of it which I actually, I actually find it quite frustrating because the actual filmmaking, the shot making of the aftermath of that event, I actually thought it was really good. Yeah. And the score, um, so not the not the written not the, not the written music, yeah. not the songs. The score I also think is very good, and that, mm. like it was working together really well there. But then you have the part of the credits play over that segment and it seems like it's trying to set it up for as you said we're going to do this a little bit differently we're mm. building up to something where we want your full attention so we're getting this out of the way now yeah. it doesn't really do that mm. so that it, it kind of promises something then doesn't pay off uh, yeah. on it the second but the only thing i would disagree the the idea of the 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 young actor playing both uh, young celeste and celeste's daughter mm. It, it, it kind of worked for me um, in what it, I think it was trying to get across. I don't think it worked within the film as a whole mm. because you, in the opening act, um, Celeste is this very kind of wide-eyed, enthusiastic, really quite put-together mm. uh, young woman who is trying to seize this opportunity that has come her way. You then fast-forward a full 16 years uh, and the film makes a big deal about uh, 9-11, September 11th being the point at which we then break and cut. Yeah. So it's kind of the you know the loss of innocence of the character in addition to the nation. And it fast-forwards 16 years. So I think the, the fact that the daughter was quite similar to the young Celeste, I think it worked in being able to directly contrast the two. All right, yeah. um, so I, in that respect, I think it worked. I think what doesn't work is it's not really getting across what I think it wants its message to be it's another one of these films where 
I feel like it wants to say so many things. It wants to talk about America and its response to tragedy. It wants to talk about what tragedy comes about from. It wants to talk about the impact of fame on young people. It wants to talk about how people consume it and what they do with consuming artwork and all, all these things. And I just don't feel it really landed the bullseye on any of them. Not at all. Not to me either, no. One of my points actually is that the so I I like the first part of the film. I like the part where there's the strategic beginning, which was done, I think, very tastefully and in a way that's not done before. So there's a character who is who starts all this this horribleness and he's not portrayed like that kind of character is portrayed in everything else I've seen so far. So that was that was an interesting premise. So that I was interested at that point. But then the moment we go into Natalie Portman's character, it just turns into crap. Like it's uh, my, my other point is mega cringe. So there's the dialogue that I found. The first dialogue between Natalie Portman and the daughter is absolutely horrible. So it it tries to say all these things. Like, like you said, it, it tries to tap into all these all these issues but then the way it's portrayed is just ridiculously stereotypical so there's all this glit and gloss and you know it's saying people once you go into fame young you start using drugs and then you have to drink wine all the time and you have to be drunk and you lose your personality and you become this like spoiled brat but that also loses it loses the weight of the character as well. I think some people are saying this is Natalie Portman's best acting job, and I think it's definitely the worst one. It, I think she's doing a horrible job, but I'm not sure if it's the script or if, it, if it's the direction or what it is, but I'm kind of leaning on towards the script being like ridiculously stereotypical. I, I, I would agree with the problem in the script. I, I actually think she probably does a reasonably good job with what she has, um, but I think part part of the issue for me is the the structure of the film? So it, it, there's all sorts of as I've discussed. I mean, and I only I, I only just watched this film uh, last night before we spoke about it, and I kind of wish I'd watched it a lot sooner, right? Because there is quite a lot to parse here. But there are a lot of strands to it. But I th- actually think the time jump between this Act One and Act Two doesn't serve the film that well because it's wanting to make comments about, as we've said, you know, mm. potentially the impact of fame potentially the response of uh, societies to tragedy. And I suppose just so we can stop dancing around, we don't need to go into details about the opening scene, but let's <laughs> just say it, it takes place before 2001 because that's when we have the time jump. And then prior to that, it's a pretty obvious um, vehicle for a, a Columbine al- yeah. allegory, yeah. basically. And obviously Celeste is caught up in this and it has an impact upon her and then the path that she then takes. So it, it's trying to say something about how people and maybe American society at a wider level respond to tragedy. But the thing is, because you've got this massive time jump, mm. it's basically focusing more on the end point. Mm. We don't get really get a lot about why is it that people are responding in a certain way? What is it that drives people to go down certain routes to cope with tragedy or cope with early fame? It, it, it kind of skips to the end. Yeah. And to me, it, for me, it kind of loses a bit of impact as a result. It doesn't mean that, it, it doesn't mean it has no interesting things to say. I think it has a lot of interesting things to say. Mm. I just don't think it is saying them in a very interesting mm. manner. Yeah, I agree. And I think my biggest issue with it is it would be amazing if we would if it would be able to tap onto these things on like so society's level, 
but it is so much a character film. So it's all about this character who is this and this and that. And when the character is not that strong, I, I just lose it. It's just lost on me. I, I don't get anything out of it. And then it's also, I think it's built on very loose premises. So, for example, there is um, th- the end scene that I mentioned that's a massive concert. Yeah. Just goes on way too long for what it is. So, first of all, the songs are shit. Um, <laughs> secondly, this if it's supposed to be this like a big big stage show the stage is just a flat stage it's like if you do something like this bring in like uh, a Beyonce's pyramid from like Coachella 2018 kind of shit not just a f- flat stage with nothing on it it just it seems very very vague and very fake to me um and it's maybe because also this this subject if it if it was just a, a character study of someone who's gone into fame at a very young age is done so much better before so um what i automatically thought of when i watched this film was satoshi khan's perfect blue um if you're familiar with that it's it's remade um or so like it, it was an inspiration then for black swan which is also another natalie portman film um but it discusses this kind of how how public perception is is affecting your personal self and the way you see yourself and the person you become because you're in in public eye from some such a young age and it's it does that so well it's it's difficult to top that and maybe I was too stuck in that idea to think oh yeah it's just trying to tell us what fame can do to you but that's what the film is to me if it was more about that or how do we as Americans deal with grief and deal with violence and deal with loss? Um, that would have been way more interesting, but it just doesn't get there. Well, that's the thing. I think if it had focused more on that, I think it could have been a stronger film. There was one line that actually kind of stood out to me, and it's when they're talking about the response to um, a terrorist attack later in the film. So it doesn't happen in the setting of the film, but it's uh, kind of a key part of... Um, the plot and a lot of the character interactions in that second act. And basically, um, the line is uttered, um, if everyone stopped paying attention to them, meaning the the terrorists and people who perpetrate tragedy, they'd cease to exist. Mm. And then the Celeste character makes the observation that, well, perhaps that would mean that nobody would pay attention to her anyway, but so be it. So it clearly wants to try and draw these parallels, but it doesn't, mm. it doesn't really fully commit to them. And it, it's got this very... Von Tr- now, admit it, it has a voiceover, um, which is yeah. done by Willem Dafoe. And obviously, like you know, Willem Dafoe is a bit of a Lars von Trier staple, and I felt like mm. it, ga- it kind of gave it a bit of a, you know, melancholia-type vibe. But the material you're then dealing with kind of sat at odds with that tone. It clearly has aspirations to making kind of greater philosophical or greater commentary-based points, mm. but it doesn't really commit to them it's like you you've just said there if it had a bit more of that i think it could have been a more compelling film but it's just it it doesn't it wants to just you know tickle around the edges of all of these different themes when i think it really needed to fully commit to one and i think if it had done that it would also have a slightly better ending um because to me the end to me the ending was was a bit of a damp squib i don't really know what you're meant to to get from it and sure 
there's huge layers of artifice around this uh, concert. It finishes on, and again, maybe that's part of the point because it feels so apart from the rest of the film, just as it is apart from the rest of, um, you know, our as normal people day-to-day existence right i'm not getting up and singing songs in front of thirty thousand people nor would you want me to (laughs) so that's maybe part of the point but it's just it, it kind of loses sharpness with a loss of focus and whilst the chaos is meant to be a part of her life and it's meant to communicate something that's going on with the character it really means that it's very hard to take something from the film clearly there's lots going on but it's just too amorphous and diverse to really actually fully communicate it. Yeah. And in the end, one of the songs he's, she sings is like, I'm a private girl in a public world. It's like, yeah, we got that already from the first 90 minutes of the film. Yeah. It doubles down on things that you don't really think it should, and it doesn't pick up on other things. Yeah. And I, what bothers me as well is like, like you said, if it would be tapping on different issues, it'd be much better. But then it also calls itself a 20, 21st century portrait. It's like, oh, right. So it's a portrait of an artist. Which actually just made me think of that film about Zinedine Zidane, actually. Oh, yeah. Another <laughs> film that I hate. I see. I like that one. I like that one. But there you go. I, I'd watch that above Vox Lux again, let's be honest. But... Uh, yeah, I'd probably watch that. Yeah. Yeah. What I will say is, it's a very polarizing film. I mean, I think certainly I, I have come across plenty of people who absolutely loved it, and there's plenty to recommend. Same. Yeah. Um. You know, there's a lot of very good filmmaking in there. I just don't think it hangs together as a full piece. So I would still encourage people to check it out, make your own decision on it. But I'd be interested to know if they thought it came together or what they maybe got out of it. Yeah. So forthcoming events include uh, Cinetopia are running uh, an event called Cinema on the Shore, and they'll be featuring Italian cinema along with, I believe, pizza and uh, April Spritz. So, Annie, can you tell us a little bit more about it? So, yeah, this is the event we've been planning on for a while now. Um, it's going to pl- take place on 10th of May, like you said. Um, it's in Custom Lane, Leith Shore. Uh, it's going to be an outdoor screening. Uh, we'll be screening some short films that are graciously given to us by Edinburgh Short Film Festival. Um, the Italian new short films, and we're pairing it up with a Italian classic feature that I can hopefully now say is uh, Cinema Paradiso. And we also have a, a pizza person on on <laughs> on the set who's been um, doing these. He's got these like three um, wood-fired ovens. Um, uh, he's got tenement pizza, and he'll be providing us with delicious pizza. And um, we also have drinks available, like. Uh, said Aperol Spritz and Italian themed cocktails. It sounds like an amazing event already so I can't wait for it to happen. <laughs> it's a lot of work still to get it uh, on the way but it, it's coming, it, it's there. Um, also we were wondering because we weren't super set on what we we're going to be screening. We're so big fans of, I know Amanda loves La Ventura. Um, Luca from Cinetopia loves Bicycle Thieves and I was kind of pushing for Cinema Paradiso but then I watched it again and I was like this is really meta because it's also it's got like an outdoor screening element it's like <laughs> is it going to float that well um, and there's also people doing questionable things in a cinema so I'm like do we want to endorse this um, but we're set for that now it's an amazing film it's going to be an incredible event um, so looking forward to that and you should be doing that too um, but I also wanted to bring up this question of like what's your favorite italian film do you have any ideas 
Yes, I think, uh, well, there's obviously a lot of candidates for that. For me, um, I, think one of, I wouldn't say the best Italian film, but the, my favourite Italian film is probably uh, The Icicle Thieves by Maurizio Nacchetti and Ladro di Saponetti. It's, uh, the 1980s had a period of Italian comedy auteur films, of which this is probably the best example. It's very funny. It's uh, Maurizio Nacchetti plays a director who's made a neorealist Italian film set in the late 40s very much akin to Bicycle Thieves. And they're screening it on television for the first time and he's invited to the TV studio to discuss neorealism in Italian cinema. And on the way there, um, of course, the, the, the screening of the film is interrupted by advertisements featuring a supermodel, some kids eating sweets, washing machines, TV sets and so on. And uh, there's a massive power surge. And the film becomes embedded with the advertisements and the characters from the advertisement appear in the film it takes a lot from Broadway Danny Rose, uh, and then Maurizio Nicchetti has to go into the film to save the film from the commercialism that's overtaken the movie. It's very bizarre, very surreal, uh, but also very funny. So I recommend it. If you get the chance to catch it, The Ice School Thieves, Ladro di Saponetti. I'm not sure where you can find it. I've got it on VHS if you want to borrow a copy. No, we should definitely do a VHS screening at some point. Same with the Laura, I was about to say. It's also, um, since there's two films, I think Cinetopia will have to do a double bill screening of Laura and someday have a bit of pizza and uh, MDMA. Yeah, you, you, you've got me. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Even as somebody, uh, I, so I got married in Italy, um, but you've, you've got me sold on the pizza more than the Aperol spritz. That's, <laughs> that's just something I've never managed to buy into, much to the annoyance of everyone. There'll be I know. beer as well, don't worry. And soft drinks. Too, Va bene. If you want to be that. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I, the the, the favourite Italian films thing or favourite Italian director is an interesting one because I'm one of these annoying gits who really struggles to give answers to this because when somebody asks me what's your favourite film or what's your favourite X type of film it starts sending me out into cold sweats in the panic. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so many directors that like, I mean, basically a lot of stuff by Fellini. Uh, you know, I mean, I think Eight and a Half is, is fantastic. But it's also, I think, the impact the Italian directors have had on cinema is quite something. Like, I mean, are we technically allowing uh, Sergio Leone in here? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, that was one of the films I was suggesting, but it's not as Italian as it Yeah, it, well, well, exactly. It doesn't, it, it's not necessarily, you, I mean, certainly the settings, they're not, they're not Italian, but, you know, it was very much driven by his, his style and kind of his manner of uh, storytelling. So in, in that manner, like Sergio Leone, I thought it was fantastic. What I am going to do, though is I'm going to go outside the box a little bit and do that annoying thing that film critics do where they try and find something obscure that everybody hates. Um, so a few years ago, the Cambridge Film Festival uh, did a screening of uh, a strand of films by Francesco Rosi. Uh, and I saw a couple of his films. It, it, I have to convey it, not a filmmaker I knew before that strand. Um, I think he's still kind of like, you know, he's known, obviously, but, you know, quite low down the list behind your, you know, your Fellini, your Leones, and, you know, all these all these characters. And I saw two films, one called Illustrious Corpses and another one called Hands Over the City. Uh, and they were really, really wonderful films. And he, the majority of his career seemed to be through the, the 60s and the 70s. So if you're looking for something... Uh, beyond those names once you've kind of got familiar with italian cinema if you go check out his uh they're really really wonderful films and they you know, like focus those two in particular they kind of focus on uh government level corruption so they probably make quite a uh, well local government level corruption so they'd actually probably make quite a good double bill with the likes of laurel kind of like the you know then and now and what has changed really um so i would certainly include that uh sergio leone i think just for the influence he's had as much as anything else um 
So yeah, yeah. and I, I will definitely be checking out the film that Paul has described. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, same. That that sounds very good. Mine is just boring, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. I just really, really love the great beauty from Sorrentino. Um, that's why I've seen Laura twice now. <laughs> <laughs> I give him that. But also, I'm I'm a bit worried in the way that um that he might do um, a Wes Anderson. So he's got this very strong style um, to him, and you know I I used to love Wes Anderson, but then he he became too Wes Anderson for me. And I'm afraid Sorrentino might do the same. But luckily, like the new Pope is, or the young Pope is a bit different. But um, The Great Beauty is is one of my favorite films of all time. I'd say even goes to top 10. Um, so it I is a wonderful film. It is, yeah. it is brilliant. But other than that, yeah, I think the Sergio Leone films are also, I, I'd, I'd kind of say they're Italian films because it's a whole kind of genre of spaghetti well, western. Oh, yeah, it's yeah. a whole spaghetti western yeah. thing around the glass one. But and then the, the um, Morricone scores and stuff like that it's yeah. A common yeah. Analogy, yeah so yeah i mean come along to the event tells her wrong tells her right argue with us about it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a special mention for amarcord by fellini oh absolutely yeah 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 okay so well um the networking event is also coming up very soon cinetopia are holding their next networking event on wednesday the 24th at Brewdog, the Brewdog on festival square and that starts at seven o'clock so make sure you're there for that lots of interesting people and uh, yeah we'll be looking forward to it and also Iberodox is still on uh, running until the middle of May and we're looking forward to that the closing party is on the 19th I think so you'll probably see some of us there uh, good luck to Mar and the team with the rest of the, the run and so I think that's it for this month um, thanks for listening we'll be back again as as usual hopefully Amanda will be feeling a little bit better wish her all the best um, we'll see you next month thanks for tuning in Cinetopia was uh, produced and uh, recorded by Paul Bruce uh, of the Edinburgh Short Film Festival Jim Ross the editor of Take One magazine and I'm subbing in here because apparently I can get Annie Asakainen's name a little bit better than Ooh, Paul thank you uh, <laughs> And, uh, of course, uh, Amanda Rogers, who is here in spirit, if not in body. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next month. Mm -hmm.